Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Of all of the teachings there are to give in Scripture, those in which that God's voice actually speaks, I think probably take precedence over others. It's one thing to uh, hear someone talk about what God says. It's another thing to actually hear God say it and and get it directly uh, from the Lord. And this is a portion, uh, when we get to Exodus chapter 20, the first 17 verses in which that I will read, and the custom and the tradition is that since this is God who was speaking, that we don't interrupt uh, him at any time while he's speaking. We let him have his full say. So when we come to the portion that we'll read, if you will, follow along with me, and we'll render the same honor and respect that the children of Israel did in the wilderness at the base of the mountain by hearing the whole text without interruption to hear God's voice uh, completely. This uh, portion begins uh, with a very interesting um, uh, set of circumstances. The first part that we have in Exodus 18 is that Jethro, and that's the reason why the portion is named after him, Moses' father-in-law, observes Moses' leadership style with the children of Israel as they first cross the river Uh, or the Red Sea, rather, and come into the wilderness of Sinai. And he sees Moses sitting there, uh, rendering judgment for all of Israel, very righteous judgment, the judgment of God. And he sees from early morning until late at night, the children of Israel coming one after another with dispute and issue, needing God's judgment and counsel on various things. And Moses is just, they're all in a big, long line, and Moses has taken them one at a time, doing the best he can. And Jethro says, what in the world are you doing, Moses? You know, you'll wear yourself out. You'll wear these people out. You're not doing them any good. That comes, uh, what comes forth from Jethro's counsel is what we call the principle of delegation, to share the burden of leadership, share the burden of teaching and instructing. And so it is not uh, that God's purpose that we just find one guy who can instruct, but rather that we instruct and teach and raise up many who are able to share the burden and so that all the people are ministered to and helped. And so we have an excellent case to be made here for the principle of delegation which any business in this world, if they learn this principle, will be successful, and any that does not learn this in the world will fail. It's a very simple principle. God's wisdom uh, even carries across to the business world. Now, it comes to chapter 19, and they come and they camp before the mountain, and God makes a very interesting offer to the children of Israel. Now, up to this point, they've seen God's judgments. They've been saved. Everything's going good. They got out of the Egyptian uh, slavery. They've seen uh, Pharaoh's chariots uh, drown. Uh, everything's going good. But what's the deal here? I mean, what what are we going to do next? And so God makes a very interesting offer to him. Follow along with me as I read now from Exodus chapter 19 and beginning at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel." So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now at this point, we need to examine what's what's the deal here. What has God offered and what is it that they have accepted? And the first thing you will note is that he starts out kind of with an open-ended kind of agreement. If you'll obey what I say, keep my covenant. We don't even know what that covenant is quite yet, and we don't even know what God is going to say yet. And you'll notice that the children of Israel, they are offered, in, in return, it says that I will make you a treasured people. You'll be my possession. I will choose you from all the peoples of the world. All the people are mine, but I'll choose you and make you special. I will make you a treasured possession of the Lord. And then he says, and I will make your nation great. I will make you a kingdom of priests. I'll make you a holy nation. I will make you different from other nations. 
And we don't know what God's commandments are. We don't know what he's going to say with his voice that we're now obligated to do. But you'll notice that the children of Israel and under the leadership of their elders, they accepted this proposal. Before they had even heard what God was going to command them to do or expect of them, they accepted this. And it was good that they did. But then the Lord goes one step further and then he proceeds to set the stage for this great event to happen at the mountain. Something even greater is going to take place. It will be very demonstrative and very obvious to all of the children of Israel what will follow. But before we get to that, I want you to examine one of the things the Lord said that he had already done. A lot of times when we go to make an agreement and he's basing on something he's done, we need to review that so that we understand the weight of the agreement. Because there's something that he said in there that caused the children of Israel to say, before we even hear what your commandments are, we will do it. Because they've already seen some evidence of what God has done. There in verse 4, he said, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. What had he done to the Egyptians? Well, he dropped ten judgments on them. He took every one of their gods, turned them around on them, and used their own gods and judged them with them. You know, all those plagues... Uh, that were back there in Egypt, they all have a direct correlation to one of the Egyptian gods. They thought the sun was a god, Ra. They thought the river Nile was a god. They thought Pharaoh was a god. They thought bugs. You know, have you ever seen those little shiny beetles uh, they call a scarab? You know, they, they're kind of luminescent in the light. They thought that was a god. They thought uh, cattle was god. They thought everything was a god. And at various junctures, they had priests, and they'd worship all this created stuff, and God proved that each one was not a god, and proved that he was a greater god than that. Then he says, and you'll also note, how I bore you on eagle's wings. I love this passage. Um, the, uh, I, I love to see what uh, people, te various teachers do with this, because it sounds kind of symbolic, right? I bore you on eagle's wings. And if you carry this on over and so forth, I've heard other people talking about that eagle's wings that talk about in the Scripture, that's big, shiny, modern airplanes, and that's obviously the United States of America. We, we use the eagle as our symbol, so that must be something about the United States. Take my word for it, brethren. This ain't got nothing to do with the United States. Even if we do have an eagle as our symbol, and even if we do have big, shiny airplanes as big as eagles. In fact, to really understand that, I need to tell you something in nature that they knew about that the, the average fellow doesn't know about, about eagles. Because he's talking about not that the eagle latched onto his claws and carried, and then the eagle flew, but there's something very unique about what an eagle does that he's referring to. Eagles build their nests way high in the mountains. They usually set the nest up on a precipice. In other words, literally, if you step off the nest, uh, you're going to fall. They build their nests that high. And when young eaglets are ready to begin to learn to fly, here's how they learn to fly. The big eagle, daddy eagle, pushes them out of the nest. And they get out of the nest, and there's nothing below them. And they go falling, and a really good eagle nest will be made very high, so there's a long way for them to fall. And the father eagle takes flight after them and watches them. And they're trying to get them to spread their wings and learn to soar and glide first. You know, they're, they're not worrying about trying to flap and fly up. They're just trying to get a little aerodynamic going, you know, glide a little bit. And if the eagle sees that the eaglet has not learned and is getting ready to impact with the ground, the father eagle swoops underneath them and catches them on top of their wings. And the little eaglet kind of grabs onto the father's wings and then he flies back up and takes them back up to the nest. And so it's said that they're born on eagle's wings. It's literally this frightful thing of falling and then being caught, you know, before you hit. And if you really go back and think now about the judgments that happened there in Egypt, I am certain that the children of Israel, as each of the judgments were hitting, were somewhat concerned about whether or not God's aim was going to also maybe get them too. You know, all the different things that happen, from the hail to the, you know, the water turning into blood and so forth. But in each case, God showed that he distinguished between the children of Israel and the Egyptians, and the judgment only fell 
upon the Egyptians, although it was a little scary. Not any more scary than a young eaglet, you know, going 25 miles an hour terminal velocity toward the earth and then suddenly being caught. They do that a couple of times and finally the eaglet spreads its wings out and starts flying. And so it is said that he bore us on eagles' wings. It doesn't mean that he latched onto us and carried us like prey, but rather we rode on top, you know, with him swooping underneath and being a base for us underneath. So he says, I, you notice how I bore you on eagles' wings, how I was a surety and a protection for you, and I brought you to myself. Now, the plan always was Moses had been at this mountain, had the burning bush experience, gone back to get the children of Israel, and the plan was to bring the children of Israel back to this mountain. Here they are. I've brought you to myself. Brethren, the message for most of us is that we're ultimately going to go to the promised land one day. But God has a plan that he really wants you to come to him. Yes, the promised land is part of the plan. But he really wants you to come to him. The promised land is just the bonus package. The real intent is to get to know God. And so God now has set this stage. He says, you notice how I've done all of these things. Now I'm going to do something so that they'll really understand, so that they'll really be properly introduced to me, so that they'll understand that you, Moses, have been appointed to bring them to me. And so we begin this setting of the stage for the event of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And God then proceeds to give a series of instructions to Moses for the children of Israel. And this is the original root. This is the original reason of where we have the ritual we call baptism. He instructs the children of Israel that they're to take a bath. Before they have this experience of God, he says, I want you to take a bath. I want you to prepare for what is to take place. And there was a three-day process of them preparing. Some of the other instructions that he also gave, interestingly enough, was uh, set boundaries. Don't come up on the mountain where I'm at. You, you stay where you're at. I'll be where I'm at. Because if you come forth, if you break forth from these boundaries, you'll be hurt. Because when I come down, you need to be at a safe distance. We need to set up some boundaries, correct boundaries for us. And then the final instruction was, he also said, no man is to go near his wife. In other words, you get committed to hear what I have to say, and you don't have any other distraction. There's an old, old Hebrew expression that goes something like this. It is better to talk to a woman and think of God than to talk to God and think of a woman. And you can see the obvious reason for that. And that's basically what God wanted to also establish here. I want your full, undivided attention. And what proceeds then is the following. Verse, beginning at verse 16 of chapter 19, it says, So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Moses goes up, the Lord says, make sure you go back down and make sure no one attempts to come on this mountain. One last final warning. You tell everybody to stay back. And then what follows is they hear the voice of God give the Ten Commandments. Follow along with me now. Chapter 20, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read in its entirety through the first 17 verses. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol 
or any likeness of what is in heaven, above or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Those were the words that all of the children of Israel heard. And it concludes, and it says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Now, let's just step back and think about this for a moment. Let's see, God gathered all the people, had them go through this three-day preparatory thing, kind of raised their anticipation level, calls them with a big trumpet, a big loud trumpet that got louder, that he descended onto the mountain with fire, that smoke was blowing up from this mountain. It looked like a, a huge volcano of sorts, this burning fire, that the mountain was shaking and quaking. I mean, everybody was afraid. In fact, there's other passages that says even Moses was full of fear and trembling. It was an awesome display. How do you feel about God acting like God? I mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, wasn't he kind of acting like God or something? How do we feel about that? You know, when we see things like that and we see somebody acting like God, we don't like that, do we? In fact, you ever heard anybody make that comment to someone that somebody has something very bold and very dramatic or strongly worded or said, well, he's acting like God. And we say it in a derogatory fashion. If he's acting like God, it's holy. But we tend to use that expression to mean something very negative. There is a teaching about God's commandments. They, it's a, about a father and two sons. One son is obedient. He has a heart toward the father, the love of the father. He, he's desirous to do good. The other son is, he really doesn't want to have to do this stuff, and he'd really like to do his own thing, and he'd just as soon not have to have any requirements or chores from his father. And so one son who has the obedient heart, he hears the same thing that the disobedient son hears. The same words are spoken, but the one who has an obedient heart, he hears opportunity to do. He hears opportunity to serve, to please his father. The other one is trying to, is looking at it and going, oh, brother, I got to do that. Well, I don't want to do that. How can I get around that? How can I avoid that? Same words. The same words are spoken by the father, but two sons react differently to it. There are some men who hear these words and they say, because they have an obedient heart, this is easy. This is not hard. We could do this. This is not a problem. This, this, I, I could, this is, this is easy. And then other sons who don't have the obedient heart, they say, oh, I, well, we got to get around that somehow. You know, of all of the Ten Commandments that are here, they're really broken into two groupings. The first five have to do with your relationship with God. The second five have to do with your relationship with man. And if you're really not inclined to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, then you're going to take issue with these commandments in some way. And if you're really not interested in loving your neighbor as yourself, you're going to take issue with these commandments because they really 
aren't commandments that tell you how to love God or how to love your neighbor. They're just kind of like a perimeter. In other words, you can you have the freedom to go love God any way that you want. It's just when it comes to these five areas, you can't cross this line on these five things and then go around saying you love God. For example, if if you if you say you love God, you can't go around taking his name in vain. You can't do that in the same breath. You can't say, oh, I love God and then slander his name. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I mean, even a man would judge that and say, you don't need a God to judge that and see the, right, the, the unrighteousness of that behavior. And the same thing is true about loving your neighbor. If you, if you say, oh, I love my neighbor, but you murder him, you can't go around saying, yes, I love my neighbor and justify murdering him or stealing from or committing adultery with his wife. You can't, you can't tell the guy you love your neighbor if you're doing that sort of stuff. The, obviously, this, this breaks that. So he's, he's really set some parameters here to give a definition for how you will love God or how you will love your neighbors yourself. He basically said you can't go there. You can, you can operate anywhere in here, but you can't cross this. Now, because in our new covenant faith, because replacement theology and disobedient hearts have dominated the leadership of the church over the last 2,000 years, they have looked at these commandments and said, how do we get out of them? How do we get around them? Let's, let's not deal with them. Let's do something else. And I'll, I'm going to lay for you two real basic points that proves that. And for most of us, we come out of that experience. Most of us in our new covenant faith, we've had teachers who've covered this subject before, but based on their teaching, we can tell what they really think of it. There are some who say, well, the Ten Commandments don't apply at all. Well, we have grace now. We have the new covenant. We have grace. Ten Commandments, we don't keep commandments anymore. And then others say, well, yeah, we do have some of those, but it's just the moral law. You know, it's just just the ones that we think uh, are the measure of righteousness. The ones we agree to. I call those guys the cut and paste Bible. Oh, I like that commandment. We'll keep that one. Oh, that one's a little Jewish. Let's, let's not have that one. Uh, that, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I don't like guys doing that to me, so we'll keep that as a commandment. And so we kind of have a tendency to shape our theology around that instead of what did God say. Let me give you a case in point of what I'm saying about how this teaching, even though God spoke the very words, how this teaching has been distorted by those brethren who didn't want to do this. Like, for example, it doesn't say there are Ten Commandments. It doesn't say, well, this is number one, this is number two. In other words, it's a teaching that there are Ten Commandments here. It's not because of Cecil B. DeMille's, you know, decided to do a movie. I mean, everybody's been teaching. There's Ten Commandments here. But you know what? There's a lot of confusion about what the First Commandment is. If you go to into the average Orthodox Christian church today, if you go down to the Bible bookstore and you want to get a, one of those plaques of the Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment that will be listed there? What's the first commandment that you will hear? It'll be there in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Only God said something before that. And these are all commandments. So they skip the first thing that God said. And they miss it. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now a commandment, let me give you a little English here. A commandment is a particular mood of language. We call it the imperative mood. Imperative means, means it's imperative that you do it. It's a command. It's a, you have to do it. It's called the imperative mood. And that first phrase doesn't sound in our English like an imperative mood. So they read it and they say, well, that's not a commandment. In fact, they think that's the indicative mood. This is the scriptures indicating something. It's just a preamble. It's just giving some introductory material before we actually get to the imperative. But the truth of the matter is, if you go back to the original language, if you'd have been there, you'd have known what that commandment was, because that's a commandment. That is a commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's the command? Believe in me. This is who I am. Believe in me. Make me your God. I am the Lord your God. Believe in you. Unless you believe in him, he'll never be your God. He'll just be a God. You can't make him your God unless you're willing to trust him and believe in him. Now, some Christians might say, well, uh, well, obviously that doesn't apply to us. We're New Covenant believers, and uh, we didn't leave Egypt. You know, we, we New Covenant believers, we Christians, we weren't in Egypt. We didn't get saved out of Egypt. We're, however, we were in the house of the slavery to sin, and we all give testimony that we've been delivered 
by our God from the house of the slavery to sin. And that's what this was really about. This was just an example to explain that. In fact, Yeshua came teaching and specifically saying, I'm talking, he referred to them as, as slaves. And he said, we're not slaves, we're free men. He said, no, I'm talking about the slavery to sin. So the first commandment for us is to believe that this God is our God who's delivered us from the slavery of sin. That's the real teaching of this. That's what Moses is really talking about and what the whole rest of the Bible follows to teach. So right off the bat, we're not sure what the first commandment is. You know, fundamentally, you're not going to really, really be able to pass yourself off as an expert in God if you can't get the first commandment of the Ten Commandments right. How are you going to be able to represent yourself to other believers and say, oh, listen to my instruction if you can't get the first commandment right? And this is the only place where the Bible says, believe in me. It's the only place. And it was from the mouth of God himself. And all the people heard it. But we skip over it. Then if you look down through the instruction here, there's one particular commandment that stands out that has more explanation than any of the other commandments. It's the fourth commandment. It's a commandment about Sabbath. In fact, there's about three, four verses dedicated to it. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you should labor, do all your work. He gives all this instruction in the Ten Commandments, all this instruction about this one commandment, and of all the commandments that we have here, that's the one that gets disputed the most. Instead of having the obedient heart and say, oh, God wants us to keep Sabbath. Oh boy, I get to have a day off, you know, with the Lord. Honor the Lord. Oh boy, I had an opportunity to serve the Lord, an opportunity to honor Him as Creator. An opportunity to have testimony, a clear testimony, to whom we believe in. No, but we're looking for ways to get out of it. So we dispute it. Many, many years ago, I was a Baptist minister. I was involved in one of the biggest Baptist churches in Colorado Springs. And one of my duties there at that church was I was one of two. In fact, I was a leading adult Sunday school teacher at First Southern Baptist there in Colorado Springs. I was the leading adult Sunday school teacher. And the Sunday school quarterly for the Southern Baptist had this passage of Scripture for its instruction. I didn't, like, pick the topic. This was the instruction. I was a good Baptist minister. I followed exactly what the quarterly taught for the Southern Baptist, and that's what I taught. When you came to my Sunday school class, in the adult Sunday school class at First Southern Baptist Church, you were going to get the Southern Baptist Sunday school quarterly, and I was going to teach it. And it was on the Ten Commandments. And so I, with my class, I posed two types of questions. I read through just exactly as I've done with you. And then I said, I have a question for the class. I'd like to go every one of you in the class, one at a time, I'd like for you to answer it. I, I want to, uh, just like everybody heard God's voice, I want everybody in the class to hear your voice. Now, I thought this was going to be a wonderful thing. I, I really thought this was going to be very helpful and instructive and so forth. So the first question I said is, do you believe that you should obey God? In other words, God's voice says it. You should do it. Like the children of Israel. Whatsoever the Lord has said, that's what we'll do. Do you believe that? And I was going to kind of put them through the same experience that Israel went through. And everyone in the class said yes. I said, oh, you're doing exactly the same thing Israel did. Yes, we should obey the Lord. So then I read one commandment at a time. And I went around the class and I asked him, do you believe that's a commandment of God? And therefore it would be logical you're supposed to do it. We did okay through the first one. The second one, the third one, and I read the fourth one. Mind you, this is Sunday morning, First Southern Baptist at Colorado Springs. Do you believe that is a commandment of God? And immediately the whole class began to kind of break down. Things weren't going so good. There, there, there was a spirit, a very uncooperative spirit. I, uh, that's the way I would characterize it. In fact, people out of turn started talking. And there was one fellow in particular, I remember that day, who looked at me and he said, I, I know what you're trying to do, brother. I said, really? I said, what am I trying to do? Uh, you're trying to teach something different than what we believe. I said, no, brother. Here is the Southern Baptist Sunday School Quarterly. I am teaching this lesson right here. You, you got the quarterly. Look, look what it says right there. It says, that's what we're learning. And that's the question I'm asking you. Don't say I'm teaching something different. Besides, I haven't begun to tell you what I think of it. I've been asking you what you think. So I want to know, do you think that's a commandment of God or not? 
And he began to balk and began to go into explanation. And I had to kind of let him talk a little bit. And basically what he said was this, bless his heart. He said, I have gone to Bible college. I said, well, praise God. He said, in fact, I have a bachelor of science degree. I have a BS degree in theology. And I looked at him and it just flowed off my lips. I I would never have thought of this beforehand, but it just flowed off. I think it was the spirit of God that came through my mouth. And I said, well, brother, I think theology is too important to BS about. (laughs) And at that point, the whole conversation went south. (laughs) There were people crying. Dismay hit the room. It was the strangest Sunday school lesson I ever had in my life. I mean, there were people got up and left the room. They were upset, and I was in big trouble there after that. In fact, the education minister about a month later invited me out to lunch, and he sat down, and he said, Now, Monty, he said, I, I need to ask you a couple of questions. I said, Okay, shoot, what you got? He said, um, Do you believe in God? I said, What? Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior? Yes, brother, I believe that. What, what is this all about? Well, there's some brethren here, they don't think you believe in God. Really? They don't think I believe in God because of why? Well, because uh, uh, your teaching that you did on the Ten Commandments. That's right. You see, this is the measure of whether you believe in the God. Because the God that spoke here is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt and is the God who created heaven and earth in six days and rested on the seventh. And if you strip that first commandment and that fourth commandment out, you can take these other commandments, you can assign them to any God you want and pass yourself off as a religious person. But if you really believe in the God who spoke these commandments, there's two commandments that are a dead giveaway. It's who do you believe in and whether or not you keep the criteria that he said about who he was. Now, let me put it to you in this context. You remember how I showed you first, God set these instructions that these are the parameters, these are the guidelines. If you say you love your neighbor, but you violate this thing, you don't love your neighbor. That's not a true statement. If you say you love your neighbor, and you bear false witness against him, and you lie to him, or you lie about him, and you slander him. I don't care how you spin it. I don't care how you try to qualify it or explain it away. We know you don't. And the same is true with regard to God and these other statements. If you say you know God, and you, but you don't believe in him, then you don't really know God. You don't really have a relationship with him. If you don't believe in him, you don't have a relationship with him. If you make idols and set up other gods against him, you don't believe in him. You just don't. You don't love God. With, not with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And it also follows, brethren, if you will not keep Sabbath, don't pass yourself off as a believer of this God. Because he said that's one of the criteria. It's just as strong a criteria as how you treat your father and your mother. You dishonor your father and your mother. Don't say you believe in me. I'm your heavenly father. You've not seen me. If you can't figure out how to love your earthly father whom you've seen, how in the world do you claim you love me whom you've never seen? He said, this is his criteria. I didn't make this criteria up. God didn't consult with me or any other man. Well, he didn't come down and say, hey, uh, Moses, what do you think about this commandment? I've been thinking about this commandment. What do, you, do you think that'll work? God did not consult with any man about that. This is his definition if you're going to believe in him and have a criteria of a relationship with him. And he says, there's going to be some balance. You, the way you treat me is, is, I want to see the way you treat other people. Now, John in the New Testament says some other things that's in along the same logic. If you say that you love God and you hate your brother. In other words, you say, I keep the commandments of God, but I don't keep the commandments of loving your neighbor. He says, you're a liar. You don't love God either. He said, if you claim to love your neighbor, but you don't love God, you don't love your neighbor either. You don't. And there's balance. There's a requirement of all of these. The way Paul said it, he said, herein do I exercise myself continually to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. There has to be balance. You can't choose to love one and hate somebody else. You either love and you love according to the definition that God gives or you don't. Now, that's where it gets kind of tricky, you know, for us. When God starts putting this kind of a measure, that's the reason why we have men who want to find a way around it. 
We have men who have a lot of difficulty with this. And they want to mix their theology, and they want to talk about grace. Let's not talk about commandments. And they want to reassign all of these things as to what it means. But you heard just like I heard, this is what God said. Now, I understand that other religious men have come and twisted some of this and maybe put a wrong slant on it, but we heard simply what God said. And each one of us have to give an account to God, not through another man. We have to give an account to God. And each one of us will have to go forward before God and say, and God, it's just going to come down to, did you love God or not? Did you have a relationship with God or not? And how did you behave? And how does your behavior affect that relationship? And it says very simply that if you say you know God... And you love God, but you don't do what God says. John said, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to other people. And you're trying to lie to God, but God knows differently. And so he's given us a very simple, clean definition. You can love me a whole host of ways, but there's this parameter here, these five things. You can't cross this. You can love your neighbor even as yourself, and do all manner of good things to him, but you can't cross these five things. You can't do it. Now, all the people heard the commandments, and uh, the testimony has been given down to us. They've been recorded for us. But again, as I said, our generation and some of our past teachers, they got a real problem with this. Somehow they think that if we obey, if we let God be God, and we just do what God said, that somehow we think we're being saved by our merits. Nobody said that. God didn't say, do this and be saved. He just said, do it. He said, I'm God, you're man, obey. If you're going to have a relationship with me, do it. And we want to put all manner of spin on it and say all kinds of reasons. Like, for example, if you start keeping all those commandments, you're into legalism. You're in bondage. Let me ask you something, brethren. When God saved Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians... Do you think it was God's intent to take them out of the slavery of Egypt, just take them out of the wilderness and put them under religious bondage, religious slavery? you think that's what God was doing with Israel? Nobody believes that. Those commandments don't put you under bondage. It's what ensures your freedom. It's what makes it possible for you to live in a community of other brethren and to live freely. I've pointed this example out before. I'll point it out again. The country we live in at the moment, the United States of America, is considered by the world. I mean, you can go to other countries and they will give you this testimony. They think this is, we are the freest people in the world. We are the freest people in the world. We get to live and have liberty and freedoms like most people don't get to have. And we have more laws in this country than any other nation in the world. So law doesn't hurt us. It's what ensures that we have freedom. The example I've pointed out to others, when when you go out here and you drive and you're driving down the street and you come up to the intersection and you see one of those red octagonal signs and it says S-T-O-P. I've asked brethren before, do you, what do you do when you come up to that sign? Do you come up to that sign? Do you stop? Yes. You know, yes, I stop. Why? Why do you stop? Well, it's the law. Oh, it's okay to follow man's law, but it's not okay to follow God's law, right? Where did you get that logic from? Well, it's because I understand that law. It's, it's, uh, it's for my safety. Oh, so there might be other cars coming the other way. And if you'll stop and obey them, then you'll take a look and so forth. You won't rush out there and somebody won't hurt you and you won't hurt somebody else, right? So you see the purpose of the law. It's for your good. It's for the good for the community so we can all relate with one another and we don't injure one another, right? Right. Oh, yeah, I got it. I said, well, let me ask you something. Do you stop even when you don't see any cars coming? As you're approaching the intersection, you look both ways. Uh, uh, no cars. Do you still stop? You know what the purpose of the law is. Do you still obey? Yes. Why? Oh, well, I've also learned that there's this guy that drives around in another car that's got this uh, bubblegum machine on top. And if he sees you go through that thing and you don't stop, he'll pull you over and it will cost you some money. You'll be fined. You'll be punished. Really? So it's because of the threat of punishment that you also obey the law? Yes. Do you know that God says if you do not obey these laws, you're going to be punished? Doesn't that provoke you to want to keep it? I mean, it provokes you to stop at the stop sign. Why doesn't it provoke when God threatens to punish you? Why doesn't it provoke you to obey there? I mean, you understand the rationale and the reason for it. And quite simply, if we can see the wisdom 
to obey man's laws, which are for our safety, our protection. Why can't we see the idea of obeying God's laws, which are also for our safety and our protection in life? And by the way, God is a far more righteous judge than any judge you're going to find at traffic court. Far more righteous. If we can see the wisdom of doing that here, why don't we see the wisdom of obeying the Lord? I mean, we do call him Lord, you know. How do we call him Lord, but we don't do what he says? I mean, isn't that a paradox? He's Lord, but we don't do what he says. Even Yeshua has that. You call me Lord, why don't you do what I say? Well, then it gets into other things. Well, you know, all that was changed. You know, when Yeshua came, you know, the sacrifice of Yeshua, it did away with the law. Fulfilled it. It's a, and when he fulfilled it, he did completely away from it. It's like it's of null and void. It doesn't have any bearing on us whatsoever. We are now free. We have gotten our e-ticket into the old Disneyland, and we can go on any ride we want, any time we want. It's called the grace of God, and we don't have to worry about that stuff. Really? Yeshua didn't say that. Yeshua didn't say at the crucifixion the law would be over. But some men say that. Yeshua didn't say that when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the day of Pentecost, on that Jewish holiday, that all holidays would cease. He didn't say that at all. In fact, all of those things were used in conjunction with the giving of all of his teaching, and he was never in conflict with any of it. In fact, he was in complete agreement with it. In fact, he taught it. But we have men, they want to come up with a reason, and so let's say that Yeshua, Jesus... He's God, so therefore he can change it. Man can't change it, but he can change it. So let's say he changed it. Although Yeshua said specifically, think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And that's the key word. They want to make the word fulfill mean abolish. But he said, don't think I came to abolish. Rather think that I came to fill it up full of meaning, is what he said. To fill it up full of meaning. In next week's portion, we are going to look at the section that follows this, which is called Mishpatim. Because the agreement that was made by the children of Israel concerning these commandments was, we cannot stand to hear the voice of God say them anymore. We cannot stand it. Therefore, Moses, you go up, and whatsoever God tells you, you come down and tell us, that's what we'll do. And that section that we'll get into we're going to find out that the very first commandment that Moses comes down and teaches right after these Ten Commandments is about slavery, servanthood. And when Yeshua came teaching, he didn't repeat what he had said from the mountain. He started teaching from that one. He started teaching and saying, these commandments are the commandments of free men, but if you want to be the servant of God, you have to keep the commandments of servants. And that's even worse. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, not only is God acting like God, then he wants us to act like a servant. And Yeshua was filling it up even fuller with what God had said more completely. Most believers today, because of our previous teachers, are very perplexed by the Ten Commandments. They just don't know what to do with them. They don't know whether they should or shouldn't. They're afraid that if they obey the Lord, somebody will accuse them of trying to earn their salvation. They think that they've been told that, uh, that other commandments have been replaced them. You know what one of the major problems was with the Jewish religious leaders in Yeshua's day? They also were trying to replace God's commandments. They had introduced some of their traditional teaching. They had made what is called the oral tradition. And some of the commandments of their teaching in the oral tradition were so oppressive you couldn't even get to the commandment of God. In fact, Yeshua took issue specifically with the commandment about honor your father and your mother. And they had this custom called korban, giving to God, dedicated giving to God. And, they, and what a man would do is he would appoint certain resources that he had, say a field or some money or, or some, something of value, and he'd say, okay, I'm giving that to God. That way I don't have to give it to my mother and father to take care of them. Well, where's the commandment about Korban? There is no commandment. That's a tradition. Dedicated giving to God. You point something and you're going to give it to God. But there is a very specific commandment about honor your father and your mother. And Yeshua came walking along and he said, you know, you guys are a bunch of jokers. You 
prefer your traditions to the commandments of God. God said, honor your father and your mother. And that commandment takes precedence over any tradition that you have. And and if you've given it to God, then you take some of God's stuff and you give it to your parents to help them. And he said, you are a people, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, you are a people who honor me with your lips, but your hearts and your belief is far from me. And you prefer the precepts and teaching of men to the commandments of God. Boy, he took him to task. You know what? If Yeshua was here today, he'd be saying the same speech to religious men. Because you and I both know that the tradition of first day worship takes precedence over the voice of God from Mount Sinai about keeping Sabbath. And they use that as the reason not to keep Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is not a commandment to assemble. It's a commandment to cease from your labors and rest. But they've taken their tradition and they said, we ain't resting on Sabbath. We're going to assemble on Sunday. It doesn't even have anything to do with it, but they've used it to replace the commandment with. And furthermore, they said, you see, Yeshua came and he changed all that. If you go back and do a little church history, intelligent, intellectually honest church history, you will find out, and the church will tell you this. And I did this, and I've had many conversations with churchmen about this. The commandment of first day worship was started by the church fathers, Catholic church fathers. They clearly assert that they had the authority to do it, and they make the decision, they made the decision to do it that way. They take the responsibility, and they say, yes, There never is a commandment in the New Testament for first day worship, but we started that tradition in honor of certain things. We want to do it that way, and so we had to make that other thing go away. So we did that. We made that decision. That's being intellectually honest. They prefer the precepts and teaching of men, the traditions of men, to the commandment of God. The same thing that Yeshua complained about is true today. And as a result, we get hung up there. We don't hear about the other instruction. We never really have a teacher to come and teach really what the commandments are really teaching us, the structure and the logic, and why did he give those parameters, and how do they really work? And, for example, when it comes to sinning against God and breaking one of these, there's one particular commandment you have to break first before you're going to break any of the others. You have to break this one first before you break any of the others. And it's the first one. You have to cease to believe in God, and then you sin against God. For example, like Sabbath. If you say, okay, we're not going to keep Sabbath. Well, first of all, you've got to believe. You, you have to not believe in God first, and then you break the commandment to not remember Sabbath. That's the devastating part about this issue, the rub over the Sabbath. It's not so much that that men don't understand it and are ignorant of it and they just follow along. I'm talking about the men now who intentionally teach against it. According to the logic of the commandments, if a man comes and teaches against the Sabbath, it means spiritually he does not believe in God first. Same is true of the commandments of men. There's one particular commandment you have to break first before you'll commit the other. It's the last one. You shall not covet. You have to want something about your neighbor before you'll murder him or commit adultery with his wife or steal from him or slander him or lie to him. You have to want something first. You have to be motivated from the heart. You sin in the heart first. Then you do the act. And the same thing is with God. Down in your heart, you don't believe first. Then you do the other. If I don't really believe that God really spoke from the mountain and that that's my God, then I won't listen to him. And then it doesn't make any difference what I do because I'm free to break any of them. Because I don't believe. When Yeshua sat down with his disciples and he started explaining about the differences between the Sadducees and Pharisees, you don't hear these who take issue with him. You don't ever hear him sitting down with the disciples and saying, hey guys, let me explain a little of the theology of the Sadducees with, uh, with you. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're really into the temple system. They think that's predominant. Pharisees, they're into the, the um, Pharisaic model, which is the synagogue service, and they're very proselytic. And so he doesn't sit down and say that. He doesn't try to explain that about them, about their characteristics, and that's the reason why they're having a little problem with him, and he's contrary to their understanding. You know what he says? He says they don't believe, both of them. It's not theology. They don't believe. 
They don't believe they heard God's voice because they didn't hear it and they don't believe it. No matter how much God did, the thunder, the quaking mountain, the fiery furnace off the mountain, the loud trumpet, the loud voice, Moses is full of fear and trembling. They still don't believe it. And they're not listening. They're just looking for a way to get around it. Now, we can see the mistakes of those in the past. And it seems to me that we ought to learn from those mistakes. I mean, that's that's the point I would want to make to you. I'm not here necessarily. I, I don't have the time to really teach you fully what the commandments are. But what I, the one thing I want you to get out of this lesson is if somebody comes up to you and says, boy, we don't have to keep those. You need to stop right in your tracks and say, well, wait a minute. That guy's not listening to the voice from the mountain. That wasn't Moses' teaching. That wasn't some man that said that. was the living God who said that. And this is a man who says God didn't say it. And something's wrong because we know he did say it. Something's really wrong. That means that man doesn't believe in that God. Quite honestly, brethren, let me give you the explanation as why they don't. Because they believe in another God. When you strip that first commandment out, the God of Israel that we're talking about. Let's get rid of the God of Israel. In fact, let's just get rid of Israel. (laughs) Let's get rid of the chosen people. Let's replace them. Let's replace it with the church. We'll be the new Israel, okay? And then we'll make it the God of the church. Okay, so let's change all that. And let's get rid of Sabbath. You know, that's the other thing. You know, that was the the sign of the covenant between God and Israel. Get rid of that thing. We want to get rid of Israel, get rid of that covenant. Let's have the new covenant replace that covenant. And skip that part where Jeremiah says that the new covenant was given to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. We'll just skip that. We'll just have it for us. We'll just replace all those other verses. And in fact, let's do this. Anytime where God talks about a blessing, let's bring that forward. But anytime where he talks about a curse, uh, leave that for Israel. We'll have Israel take all the curses and we'll take all the blessings. Sounds like a plan, right? Well, that's what they did. Only they got a real problem here because Yeshua goes on to not only say... This is the same God they claim to believe in. That God, Yeshua said, that these commandments that are in the law will never pass away. He said heaven and earth will pass away before these will pass away. And by the way, we're still here. Heaven and earth is still here. Not one of them has passed away, according to Yeshua. The very God they claim to believe in, not one of them has passed away. In fact, he goes on further and he says, if any man comes to you, And teaches you so as to annul the least of these commandments. Let me tell you something, brethren. He's least in the kingdom. He might be in the kingdom. He might be saved. He's least. But he who teaches and keeps these commandments, he shall be great in the kingdom. Now, there's a lot of men representing themselves as great in the kingdom. You want to take a measure of who's great in the kingdom? What do you say about the commandments of God that were spoken from Mount Sinai? Do you think those are the commandments or not? And do you keep them? That's the measure. That's the measure that Yeshua gave. So let's go on a little bit further. Let, let's, let's skip all that. We won't listen to him at all on that one. Let's, uh, let's uh, listen to uh, those other teachers in the New Testament. You know, the ones that wrote the letters. You know, that's the, th- those are the ones that really talked about this. You know, like James and Peter and John and all those guys. Except that Peter, James, and John all speak about good things about the law. In fact, James says, if you say you have faith, gee, that's good. But let me see your obedience. That will show me your faith. It's easy to say it. Show it to me. When a man comes up to you and says, oh, he believes in God, I will tell you a very simple test, spiritual test, is whether or not he believes in God. Find out which commandments he keeps. That will tell you which God he believes in. I believe he believes in God. The question is, which God? Which God does he believe in? Because the commandments he keeps, that shows the God he believes in. He'll keep those commandments. And so when you start looking at what the commandments they keep, there is very apparent today, there's a God I call the God of of, uh, churchianity. He's a real God. Uh, He goes by the name Jesus. They stole that too. They stole the glory of God. Some of the commandments, but not all of them. That God is not going to be at the resurrection. The God of Israel is going to be at the resurrection. The one that's in the kingdom and in heaven is the one that Moses spoke of, the one that Yeshua spoke of, the one that the New Testament writers spoke of. It won't be the one that the church fathers spoke of. It'll be the real God, the eternal God, the almighty God, our heavenly Father, the one who blesses and gives commandments. Now, they probably get down to the point where they say, well, it's really Paul. You know, Paul. 
I mean, he's the one who really said, don't keep festivals, don't, don't do all that stuff. Now, I want you to understand the logic of this. Yeshua doesn't agree with him. Peter, James, and John don't agree with him. Now they're going to say that Paul, he's the one who changed all of it. In fact, that little myth that's been going on, that's, that's described back in the New Testament. There was a rumor, the New Testament says, a rumor rose up that Paul was telling the Jewish believers that they didn't have to circumcise their sons. He was telling Jewish believers they didn't have to circumcise their sons. And when Paul came back to Jerusalem, when he was arrested in Jerusalem, they had a big discussion about this. James sat down with Paul. Paul, there's this rumor that has risen up against you that you yourself are telling the Jewish believers not to circumcise their sons. We know this is not true, he says. To prove it, we're going to have you pay the fees for four Messianic believers who are going to the temple for a special Nazarite vow, keeping the law, by the way. You're going to pay the fee so we can prove to the tens of thousands of believing Jews who believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and keep the law that you're like them. You're going to prove that you are orderly and that you keep the law by doing it. You know what the average churchman says about that? They say, Paul was deceiving us. He said, oh, that, that's all I got to do? I just got to go in there? I'll, okay, sure. I'll lie to him. We'll make this issue go away. Now they think Paul's a liar and a deceiver. And, they, and, and the New Testament says this was a rumor. It was false. And they still perpetuate. Even Christians still perpetuate that rumor against Paul. If Paul was standing here today, he would tell you, he would show you the verse. Don't you understand when I myself kept Sabbath? It was my custom to keep Sabbath. What do you think I was doing when I went out to those cities and I went out there on Sabbath and I preached Yeshua in the synagogues? What do you think I was, what I was doing? I was keeping Sabbath. And when I was sitting there in Rome and I was teaching them from Moses and the prophets, what do you think I gave up on that? He would stand up and say, no, I was keeping it. I was orderly. I was doing that which was right. I wasn't claiming it was for salvation, but I was saying it was all about the Messiah and he came and he fulfilled it, filled it up full of meaning and it's for us. The real rub is this, is that the poor Gentiles have been scared half to death about, well, you know, I'm not a Jew. I mean, you know, how do I do this? You know, which commandments do I keep? You know, because there's a lot of commandments in there. There's commandments to the high priest. If you're a high priest of Israel, keep it. If you're not a high priest of Israel, you don't have to worry about that commandment. Any high priests of Israel here? Well, then you don't have to worry about marrying a virgin daughter of the Levite tribe, which is a commandment for them. And since you're a high priest, you don't have to worry about going into Yom Kippur, going into the Holy of Holies and sacrificing those two goats, you know, the one goat and taking the blood in. And there's very good possibility you'll get killed anyway. So you better, you know, hook on the rope so they can pull you back out when you go in there full of sin. You know, you don't have to worry about that commandment because you're not a high priest. Whew, thank goodness. I don't have to keep that commandment. Or if you're one of the sons of Aaron, one of the priests, you have to go and do the duty of the priestly duties in the temple service. You have to know all the different sacrifices and all that stuff. You don't have to keep all those commandments. You don't have to worry about those commandments. Unless, of course, you're one of the sons of Aaron. And any sons of Aaron here. Okay, so we've, we've skipped a whole bunch of commandments already that we don't, don't have any bearing on us. They're for others, though, for them to keep. Those commandments still in effect for them. Husbands, there's a whole series of commandments for husbands. And fathers, how you're supposed to teach, teach your children, treat your wife, and so forth. If you're a husband and a, and a father, you might want to consider keeping those. But if you're a woman, don't worry about the ones for husbands. And vice versa, you know, if the commandments for wives, you know, you, you know, husbands, you don't have to worry about keeping the commandment of wife. And children, you know, it all comes down to whatever station of life you're in, just keep the commandments that God has given for you for whatever station of life you are. And you know, when it all boils down, it really comes down to about this. It turns out that all of us, we all share something in common. We all have about ten commandments that we're all asked to keep. It really comes down to all of us identify with ten commandments. And they can really be simplified by really the positive commandment is two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. That covers the first five. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. That covers the second five. And on this, the scripture teaches, the whole law hangs. This is not hard. This is easy. By the way, that's what the Christians have been saying. The commandment is to love. Love. The positive commandment to love. Well, that's what Moses is talking about. That's what God's talking about. But he gave it in such a way so that we'd understand all the parameters so we'd be wise about this. But instead, we're not wise. Instead, we're easily misled. Because, you know why? Because we don't believe him. We don't believe he really said it. We don't hear the voice 
from the mountain. If we'd have a little of that fear and trembling, if we could just have a taste of it, I believe it would change us. If we could sense God's real presence, how holy he really is, we would not hesitate to obey his voice. So I will leave you this evening with um, the same questions that I posed back many years ago to the audience there. Question number one, do you really believe that you should obey the voice of God? Before you even find out what the commandment is, what the instruction is, do you believe that you should? And number two, go down through these ten and ask yourself, do you really believe that is the commandment of God for you? And then you do what the Lord says. And if you do, you will show that you believe in him. And if you take issue with it, you are proving to you, to the Lord, and everybody else observing, you don't believe in him. It's that simple. It's not complicated. It's not hard. His commandments are not grievous. They do not keep you from living or experiencing joy or life to the fullest. That stop sign out there at the corner is not going to keep you from getting to where you need to go. It's just going to ensure that you get there safely if you obey. And the same is true of these commandments. If you'll obey them, it doesn't stop you from living your life. It just makes sure that you live it safely, correctly, and you get there okay. Now, brethren, this is really kind of where the rubber hits the road for us spiritually. This is what distinguishes our congregation from some other congregations. It's not about doctrine and theology. It's about, do we believe? Can we hear the voice of God? And do we believe He really is God? And that we're just men and we're supposed to obey what God says. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your voice being heard on Mount Sinai. Thank you, Lord, that you've taken the time to explain your commandments. Thank you, Lord, that you want to instruct us and teach us so that we can live life to fullest. Thank you, Lord, that you give us salvation freely as a gift, just like you gave to the children of Israel. You saved them before they even knew what the commandments would be. Thank you, Lord, that you've saved us by grace, even before we've been instructed in how to walk before you. Lord, I would pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would move on our hearts and draw us and woo us by kindness, by mercy, by grace, that we would be inclined toward you, that we would have the heart, Lord, to want to follow you. Because we know, Lord, that it's from the heart that we first obey. We know it's an emotion to love. And we know it's by the will that we agree that you're God and we say, I will obey. I will believe. I will trust. And then it follows that we keep it. Lord, I would pray for this assembly, for our congregation, that you would by your Holy Spirit, do that wonderful work, that you would enlarge our hearts to hear your voice. Without hesitation, without qualification, say, yes, we will obey you, Lord. Just what is it that you want us to obey? And that then when we hear your voice, we'll not listen to other men who want to explain you away but rather we'll hear your voice and our allegiance and our obedience will be given to you and only you. And that even though other men would stand in the community and say, let us not obey the Lord, we will have the heart to do it. Even if it's at cost and expense, even if we get rejected by other people that we love and care for, that we will prefer you over all others. And Lord, these are the measures. This is the test. We know it. So I ask, Lord, that you would do this wonderful work with our assembly and our people. Because truly, our unity and our fellowship will be sweeter if you really are our God. And that we're not here to be religious men. We're just men who desire to follow the Lord. And that we'll all learn together and be instructed together. And the Lord... Uh, even as Paul said that warned us to be careful of the traditions of men and vain deceit which will take us captive, that we'll believe that your commandments set us free, that the truth sets us free. 
So I would ask, Lord, that you would, with the keeping of the commandments, that you'll truly keep your word and that we'll be set free and we'll see the freedom of life. I ask, Lord, that you do this wonderful thing because I know it would be best for us and I know it is really what your will is, that you want a people that is truly submitted to you like those at the foot of the mountain. So, Lord, we pray for this. We ask that you continue to instruct us and establish us to be the people that you'd want us to be, beginning with listening to your voice. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.